Welcome to Marketing Mambo with your host, Terry McDougall. It's the fun and fast podcast where we cha-cha-chat with marketing movers and shakers from around the globe. It's Terry McDougall with Marketing Mambo, and I am thrilled to welcome our guest today, Kirk Westwood. Kirk is the founder and CEO of Glass River Media. He is also an Army veteran and author of My Very Best Bad Idea. Kirk, welcome to Marketing Mambo. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. I just gave a very high level overview. Tell us who Kirk is. Oh, man, we don't have time to answer that question. I'm a storyteller is the long and short of it. If you boiled me down, at the end of the day, I'm always about finding the story that's going to work. And and if, if, if that's talking to my children, it gets crazy and insane and over the top. If I'm talking for one of my clients, it becomes anywhere from conflict resolution to marketing. I love storytelling and finding the right story that moves your story along the way you want it to. And that can look like a lot of different things. So tell me, what does Glass River Media do? Me and my my business partners are all filmmakers. In some capacity, one of us came from government, one of us came from corporate. I'm the filmmaker that spent time in Los Angeles and then also in the military. So we're all visual storytellers. But when we opened the doors in 2015, the big problem was Video was blowing up so much. And you know, these the big boys out there that could hire Ogilvy and Edelman and all these. And so the videos were awesome, but video is truly a tactic. It's not a strategy. And video only works as well as the strategy it, it's combined to. And so all these people, this is about 2015, are rushing to their, their local video production company and saying, take my money, take my money, make me a video. And we were happy to take their money. And They'd love the product. They'd release the product and, and we'd follow up with three months, six months, eight months later. Hey, how'd it going? Love to check in, see what you need. And they're like, yeah, we're really disappointed. We were so excited about video and we love the video you guys did, but it just didn't work. And we're like, okay, cool. What do you mean didn't work? And we'd find out that their strategy was put on YouTube and then there was no more to the strategy. That was the strategy. What Glass River Media did is we didn't throw away what we do. We're still a video production company. But now instead of saying cash or credit, we say we now will help you build the strategy that it fits into. If you're set, all we do is go, cool, great. We make the video. But if you're not, you're like, yeah, I know I want to do videos. We help you figure out, should it be a three-minute explainer video? Should it be a weekly LinkedIn video? There's a lot of people out there selling their system and they just don't actually work or they don't work for very long. So what we do is we come in and we figure out what strategy would be best served by the video and what video would best serve your strategies and goals. That's Mm -hmm. what we are. It's funny that you bring this up about the strategy because this has been an ongoing theme as I've talked with other people in marketing about, hey, how about if we start with strategy? And we were talking about this a little bit before we uh, got on this recording about how marketing has so many meanings depending on who is is using the word because we live in this capitalist society and and all of us are surrounded by marketing a lot of people who are not day-to-day marketing professionals they have opinions and they're like oh this company put out this video and it went viral and look their business is blowing up people think i'm going to follow their tactic 
and put a video out and it's going to go viral. And that's the tip of the iceberg. The part that people that are not marketing professionals don't see is that underneath of the tip of the iceberg, if it's working, it's very likely founded on a solid strategy. People are, are doing their research. They understand their audience. They get very clear about what they expect this tactic within the strategy to do. So tell me, how do you work with clients to help them develop that strategy? This is going to sound so simple. I ask them a really simple question. That's what do you want it to do? And the answer is not allowed to be make you money. I, I developed an acronym, which is silly, but it's meant, it's a developmental outcome, D-O. What do you want this video to do? What do you want the developmental outcome? Money is a result. It is not a goal. If money is your goal, you're not solving a problem. So I, I help them restructure the concept. First, we have to understand what their company is. Do they have a widget that they're selling? Are they a service? Are they a coach? What are they? Cool. Okay. Do you want this to increase your views, your page visits? So I need more people on the website and I need my bounce rate to go down. Cool. That's a goal. Like I can Mm -hmm. work with that. I really need more people to engage on social media, not just watch the video or not just come to the page, but I really need people like talking about it. I want people sharing it. I want people laughing. Okay. That's a goal. That's a developmental outcome. I can work with that. And so we figure out what their goal is because as you mentioned, we're in a capitalist society, the everyone's end goal I hate that word in this context, is money. I had a client for a long time that ran a t-shirt company and he was like, yeah, my goal is to sell more shirts. I'm like, then I don't know what we're doing here. Are you trying to affect the culture? Are you trying to be the coolest company? Are you trying to be the funniest company? Are you trying to be the best company? I think that you're making an excellent point. It sounds like you're really challenging people to think about their brands. Who do I want to be in the marketplace? And certainly you can help them do that. Your videos are are really creative and watchable. I see them all the time on LinkedIn and it's impossible not to stop the scroll. Like <laughs> when I'm, I'm like, oh, what, what's Kirk doing now? I have to stop. I do love the pattern interrupt. I do yeah, love that. It's very dynamic. Marketing's role is to understand what's the message that you're trying to deliver and to disrupt and to amplify and to clarify for people so that they are moved to take an action. What, what people don't consciously recognize as much as they should is every single tool has an application. You don't use a screwdriver as a hammer. We all have, but you're not supposed to. <laughs> like you don't use a screwdriver to open a jar of pickles. Again, we all have, but you're not supposed to. There are tools that like, what are you talking about? It works fine. Yes, it can work, but that's not what it's for. Video is a very powerful tool if you use it what it's And that there's a very specific band of cognition that video speaks to the most. It's a branding tool. If all you're wanting to do is sell mass quantities of a simple, small thing, it's not necessarily the best tool for that. Video shows the humanity of a thing. It shows the interesting. It allows you to engage someone on their auditory cortex, their visual cortex, and their emotion. It allows you to mix all of the semantics and the structures and do some incredibly high-level things. And we use it for cat videos and that's okay. What's funny is that the cat videos are actually doing that. It it touches on all of these core things, these visceral limbic system things. The reason people aren't as effective with video is because they're trying to open the pickle jar with a screwdriver and it's possible, but it's not what it's for. You have to understand what are you trying to do and what is video good at doing? I have talked myself out of a lot of money in my career when someone came to me 
to make a video and I talked them into doing a blog like because it was the video wasn't their tool and I wanted the money, but I didn't want to be the guy that took it for something that I knew wasn't going to work from a cognitive standpoint. You have to use the right tool and video is a great tool. It's my favorite, but Mm -hmm. if you're opening a jar of pickles, you don't need a screwdriver. You're making a great point about understanding what the whole sales process is too. And what's the appropriate tactic to use at a particular point in the sales process to keep people moving towards action. And again, going back to that iceberg analogy, that for many people, they're just seeing the tactic. They're not understanding where it exists in the whole ecosystem of what you're trying to influence. Even if you did understand the sales process and you're you're using the same tactics, but you're using them at the wrong time, it's not going to work. Like maybe with that almost client (laughs) that you talked into doing a blog, maybe once they've established themselves with that a little further down the road, okay, now you're ready for video because you've developed an audience or whatever. You've got to use the right tool at the right time. The one that I love that people either they get it or they don't really quickly is that I say is that almost without exception, car commercials are not trying to sell cars. Car commercials have no interest in selling you a car. They often, they don't have the price. They don't tell you where to go. They don't have a call to action. They are literally a night road and a beautiful car with glinting lights as it wisps around wet, you know, city streets or out in the country. Car commercials almost expressly are speaking to your visceral, your childhood. They are making you hungry for excitement, for class, for leisure, pick your car brand. They all do it differently, but they all are doing the same thing. They are dialing into the you. Sometimes they'll say, then they'll throw in a few facts, best in class at blah. Cool, facts are cool. And then sometimes they'll be starting at 34.95. Like sometimes they'll add a little bit of data, but car commercials are not sales tactics. They are emotion engines. It's when you get to the guy standing on the side of the road, come on down this weekend. We have crazy deals. <laughs> that guy is trying to sell a car. It's a call yeah. to action. It's time. It's a place. It's a, you won't believe my prices. <laughs> that is a guy trying to sell a car. The infinity commercial is not trying to sell you a car. It's trying to make you want one. I recognize yeah. that it sounds like it's the same thing, but from a cognition standpoint, from a strategy standpoint, they could not be more different. Absolutely. I I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly. And research has shown that people make decisions based on emotion and they justify them with their rational mind. So it's it there and they're not uh, as somebody I was talking with somebody yesterday and we were talking about the introduction of the iPod and Steve Jobs described it as a thousand songs in your pocket. You're not buying an MP3 player. The MP3 players were out for years before the iPod came out. But I can remember thinking like, oh, should I, should I get one of those? I'm like, uh, how do you get the songs on there? But they made everything so easy that, okay, I got one and I have a thousand songs in my pocket. That's what you're buying. You're not yeah. buying an MP3 player. Yeah. Obviously, there are many whole podcasts about how how uh, Steve Jobs was brilliant. So not to go down that particular rabbit hole, but the thing that Apple has always been insanely good at is they never sold you the product. Steve right. Jobs always selling you disaffection. He was always selling you breaking the rules. He didn't sell you this product is smaller, better, and lighter than the other products. It's a thousand songs in your pocket. I don't care what they're doing. 
all the way down to one of my favorite, because I'm a word nerd and I love words, the fact that for over a decade, their slogan was think different, which is grammatically incorrect. Right. But it's perfect. It's reinforcing yeah. exactly what they say. Think different. So it's, it's, it's a billboard size, like here at Apple, we don't know grammar, but you should buy our products. And strangely enough, that reinforced people wanting to be with them. Right. One of the coolest things they did in early days is it was a thousand songs in your pocket. But one of my favorite things in marketing that I had talked to is you have to make your product public. If, if your neighbor drives a Subaru, you know that. If, you're, if your neighbor uses Colgate or Crest, you probably don't unless you're going through their medicine right. cabinet. That becomes a <laughs> right. very different conversation. So you have to make it public. He had a thousand songs in your pocket and all the cool kids were using it. How do you make sure that people know the cool kids are using it? He was the first company in ever to make the earbuds white so that when you were walking down the street, instead of having a black thing that was disappeared into your clothing, as you're walking down New York City streets, Los Angeles streets, Denver streets, you were walking a billboard of, yeah, yeah, I'm cool too. I hate to admit it, but it's like a cult. I, I am a Kool-Aid drinker myself, but yes, it is. It is very much, it's a club. Yeah. When I was looking back over your background on LinkedIn, you've got a little bit of an unusual background. You actually did film production in the army. Can you just tell me how you got started in film production? Okay. I was literally 12. We were living on Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas. When I told my parents, my father was a career soldier, a battalion commander in the United States Army. And I told him that I was going to go to film school and I wanted to be a professional storyteller and, and make movies. And at 12, he rolled his eyes at it. But at 14, when I was still saying it, it was less funny. And at 16, when I wasn't applying to other colleges, it was a very different conversation. But I was serious. I couldn't imagine wanting to do anything but tell stories for a living. For me, at that moment at 12 years old, I was literally sitting in a room with a big group of people watching a movie. And I noticed something as I'm watching the people watching the movie. Instead of watching the movie, I noticed that they all smiled in unison. And they all got giddy in unison and they all shifted in their chairs in unison. It's like, that is witchcraft. This group of people is staring at a thing disconnected to them and it is puppeteering them physically. They are physically moved by a human being that months ago, years ago, thought something, wrote it and created a thing that is making them react in unison. And that to me is the magic of storytelling. I started reading everything I could and watching TV in a way that most 12-year-olds aren't, I was watching TVs and comparing it. I was keeping notes at 13 and 14 and 15 of how is this show different than this show and why is this movie better than this movie? And I finally convinced my father that film school wasn't a complete waste of my life. Finally, I was 16 or 17 years old uh, and my dad was like, I want you, you should go get a degree in finance or you should go to get a degree in fi accounting or you should go whatever. And he said, what are you going to do if you fail? And I said, oh, dad, I'm so glad you asked. There are two options. I can either get a job telling stories or I can be a gutter scraping bum. There's my fallback plan. That went over exactly as well as you think it did, by the way. <laughs> but but I, I had a very single mind about it. And I went to film school where, for the record, to his appeasement, I did get a degree at entertainment business, which actually ended up serving me really well. Because when you get to L.A., you throw a rock and it hits 17 film majors. I did study film, but my degree was in entertainment business. I understood how the industry worked rather than just how movies were made. I got to LA and I started making movies and I started telling stories. But very quickly, I realized that much like I teach my clients now, 
I had that the storytelling that movies are only one very simple way to do that. I got a job working at Michael Bay's The Institute. Michael Bay has more than one production company. He has Michael Bay, but he also has The Institute, which is his commercial agency, where he does car commercials, where he does things that make you feel happy in your stomach and get excited. And I got to go out and be on a bunch of his commercial shoots and work in the back office and see and read. And I realized that I didn't want to be in advertising. I didn't want to make commercials for a living, but this goal I had of moving people with stories that I still love films to this day, don't misunderstand, but like that there was a bigger where to do that. To answer the army question that was in there is that this is all the height of September 11th has happened during this era. It's 2007, 2008. Everyone I know from my youth has joined the army and is coming and going. I really wanted to be a part of that, but I'm an awkward, unathletic dude. I wasn't going to just grab my rifle and run into battle. It wasn't the best application of me. And I knew that. So I walked into the Burbank recruiting office and and said, hey, I, I want to enlist. To point out here, I'm 28 years old. I have two children, a college degree, and my father's a colonel. So this conversation didn't go well either. But I was like, I, I want to enlist, but I want to be a cameraman. And they're like, that's not really a thing. I'm like, yes, it is. There are two different MOSs that are cameramen. That's a 25 Victor do- uh, combat camera documentarian and a 46 Romeo public affairs broadcast journalist. I'll take either because I can do either. And they just weren't hiring for that. And I just stood by and waited and they kept saying, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And I said, no, I, I know what I'm good at and I know what you need me for. And I know what I will be successful at. I'll wait. And I waited a little, about a year and a half actually, until they called me and they said, we have an opening for you. It's only in the reserve. It's not active duty, but it's as a broadcast journalist, you'll be helping tell the story of what's going on. I said, great. When do I enlist? And I did. I enlisted in 2011. And I got a direct commission in public affairs, which doesn't happen. There are certain fields that direct commission all the time, doctors and lawyers and chaplains. Mm -hmm. Sure. Public affairs is not one of them, but I I direct commissioned in 2014 because of the work I was doing and the stories I was telling and the generals literally that were asking me to come out and help them with their problem and helping tell their soldier story in a way that was dynamic and interesting. I am actually still in. I'm now a captain with the 75th Innovation Command. Yeah, there's so much power in storytelling. I know that I'm I'm preaching to the choir to say that to you, but I really loved that example of everybody watching the movie and you turning around and looking at the audience and seeing that you can influence so strongly when you appeal to people's emotions. We're all human and we tend to respond to certain stimulus in similar ways. There's a tremendous amount of power in that. So what brought you to the point of founding your uh, current agency? Right around the same general time frame, LA, the writer's strike. I ended up leaving LA because work was really sparse and really hard for a lot of people for a long time. I had gotten laid off from one agency I was working for during the, the writer's strike. Then I was applying for another job that I was so excited for. And they told me in the room, they're like, Warner Brothers just laid off 500 senior producers last week. Last week, we would have hired you on the spot, but now there's a fire sale on people that have 10 years more experience than you. And I'm like, you know what? I can't even be mad at that. That's like a solid answer. Like, sure. They're like, for the, for the exact same money we can get you, we can get someone that has eight movies under their belt and 10 years at Warner Brothers. And I'm like, yeah, no, uh, not even any hard feelings it. over that. Yeah. So I left LA and I moved back to the DC area where I'd grown up. Military brat, I didn't grow up anywhere, but I was familiar with the D.C. area enough 
I got a job on a government contract with the, the rough and ride, never say die life of government contracting, where I learned that is where creativity goes to die. It was awful. It is where both my agency was born mentally. It's where my book was born mentally. It was where my life completely changed because I went from Los Angeles where the copy boy could walk into a room of film directors and say, that's a bad idea. What if we did it this way? And they'd be like, you know what? The kid has a point. And then I, I moved to DC where I was literally in a meeting where a Rhodes Scholar that went to Princeton was dismissed for being brilliant because the person just didn't have the time to listen. Like, what? Steve, not now. We'll talk about your crazy ideas later. I went from a place where entrepreneurship mentality was rewarded with mansions on the beach. And I came to a place where brilliance was penalized by cubicles in the back so you wouldn't infect other people with your ideas. And it was heartbreaking. I understand where the government waste and abuse goes now. I am watching people that are brilliant get shot down every single day with ideas that would work if people would just listen at all. And likewise, I had pieces that I was really proud of. And this isn't even ego. There were good video pieces that I was doing. And I was doing these cool pieces and they were fun. I had one get held up for 10 months for a litany of the stupidest reasons that you can say out loud and not be kidding. Over a month of it was they couldn't decide the font and font color that best represented the issue. Yeah, (laughs) that's funny. As you're talking about that, I can certainly relate. I was in the corporate world for a really long time. And what I finally realized towards the end was I was having to work so hard just to do my job. So definitely that 10 months, I had things like, okay, how many hoops do I need to jump through to finally get approval? And eight months later, I finally get approval to do something that I could have started it and been done with it. And we would have gotten the results of it a long time ago, except for a lot of red tape that had to be cut through. And if you are confident in your point of view and you believe in your ideas and you're willing to take that leap of faith, it can certainly be really rewarding to step into the entrepreneurial realms. I definitely like to hear more about your book. It's the very best bad idea. So what an intriguing title. So tell us more about that. It's, it's the continuation of that same moment. I pulled this guy aside after this meeting and I'm like, so what's going on? And he's like, yeah, you know, what we could do to fix this is X and Y and Z. And I'm like, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, that fixes everything. That's the linchpin that if we just with a incremental change in the way we're looking at this, it fixes kind of everything. And our boss didn't get it, didn't see it, didn't have the time, which wasn't true, by the way. That was just what they were saying. So I went back to this guy and I'm like, I'll write it up. I'll write up the proposal. I'll help you pitch this. I can even make a, like a video kind of help pitch what we're talking about. And he's like, nope, I have 17 years in. I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm going to get out in a few years. I'm going to go open my bakery. And I was like, okay, so I want to make sure I'm, I'm hearing this. Your goal is to get out of your 20-year career having made as little impact as possible? He goes, I wouldn't have said it like that, but it bothered me. It kept me up. I was like, why are people so afraid of looking stupid? Because he's like, I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to get made fun of for my idea. And I was like, but you're right. Why would being teased bother you coming from a kid who'd been bullied his whole life? So being teased is my neutral. And so the very best bad idea was born of, I started researching thought. I started researching ideas. I started researching innovation. I started calling around to anyone who would take my call. People that worked in the creative field, people that worked in the non-creative field. I talked to cognitive neuroscientists. I talked to organizational behavior people. 
I conducted over a hundred interviews asking people about thought leadership and idea development and innovation and creativity. And the very best about idea came from this idea that you are creative. No matter who you are creative, you've just been told you're not allowed to be, or you've been told you're not supposed to be. And I've had people tell me like, I don't work in a creative field. I'm not allowed to be creative. And I'm like, that's absolute BS. I don't know what you do, but you're wrong. And, and so that's what the very best bad idea is. It is a, it's broken down into three parts. The first part is called the history of thinking. I literally deep dive into, I called philosophy students and, and anthropologists and archaeologists. I talk to them about the history of cognitive thought. Part two is called make friends with the mouse, which talks about what you were saying about how nobody knows what marketing is because it's such a big word. Things like build a better mousetrap don't mean anything because by the definition of a mousetrap, it's successful if it catches a lot of mice. Building a better mousetrap would catch more mice when the goal is to get rid of mice. So if I made friends with the mouse and asked him not to come over anymore, then I've actually achieved my goal without, not the stated, I've stated the actual goal without the stated goal. All of section two goes into Henry Ford and Edison and people that solved problems by thinking about them differently, not by building a new thing. And how Edison did not do anything you think he did at all. He did not invent the light bulb. What he did was came up with a new way of thinking about what electricity was for. That he did do. Henry Ford invented literally nothing. But he took the car from being an erudite aristocratic toy to being the Ford F-150. Like mm-hmm. he he put a, a highfalutin toy into the hands of farmers and got them to sell their mule for it. He didn't invent anything. He changed the way people thought about it. And the third section is called release the creative. And it's about how you can do that. It's about how you can redirect the definitions that are holding you back and redirect your own history of thinking and apply your own crazy, terrible ideas, things you've been made fun of or mocked for and how you can get them into the world and make them stick. Wow. Your book sounds awesome. I love what you were talking about creativity and people saying, I don't work in a creative field. And the thing that came to my mind is, are you alive? Because (laughs) life is about creativity, right? It's about, yes, in some ways, creativity has gotten a, a bad rap, like you need to be given permission to be creative. And that creativity is only for certain people. We don't know what the future holds. We all are challenged to be creative in every moment, to be like, okay, what am I facing here? How do I need to address this? And a lot of times, whatever we did in the past, there's no guarantee that's going to work in the future. Being nimble and being ready to reevaluate what we're seeing in front of us and, and think about, like you were saying, with Henry Ford and Thomas Edison, just to reframe the the problem and to say, is this really the best way to approach this? And it just sounds like your book is is something that anybody should read because we don't need to be given permission to be creative. We are all innately creative. And I think that all of us will be happier if we can just step into who we are, recognize our gifts and use them without looking for permission to do that. Kirk, it's been great talking to you. And I think that my audience is going to get a lot out of this conversation in terms of thinking about things differently. And I'm assuming that your book is available on Amazon and through other fine booksellers. Is that correct? 
The book's available wherever books are sold, Barnes and Noble, Amazon and such. But if you come to verybestabadidea.com and and buy it there uh, at checkout, use promo code MAMBO, M-A-M-B-O. That will make it cheaper than you can get it on Amazon or anywhere else, as well as it'll become signed by me. And uh, a special thanks to you and your listeners. Thank you so much for that generous offer, Kirk. That's great. So you guys heard it here. You can get Kirk's book at theverybestbadidea.com and use the promo code MOMBO for a discount assigned copy and for free shipping. Kirk, where can people find you? As simple as can be. My company is Glass River Media. We have a contact form on the website or my name is Kirk and I'm Kirk at glassrivermedia.com if you want to reach out to me directly. Okay, great. Kirk, thanks so much for being with us today. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Mambo. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, like, and share. I'd love to hear from you. Check out the show notes for my social media and contact information. Until next time, adios.